Well, welcome uh, everyone to today's podcast by the Progressive Policy Institute. I'm Will Marshall, president of PPI, and today's podcast is on the topic of rebuilding America's fiscal strength after COVID-19. And uh, this is a topic that is highly relevant now as Washington is debating yet another big multi-trillion dollar uh, relief package. And certainly, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has triggered spending at wartime levels, levels we really haven't seen since World War II, extraordinary. It's extraordinary how quickly we've become used to talking in terms of trillions here. And unfortunately, there's no end in sight as the, as the pandemic uh, infections really skyrocket in many states across the country. Uh, here at PPI, we've taken the view that the risk of not spending on what it takes to keep our economy uh, from flatlining in this pandemic are greater than the risk posed by ballooning deficits and debts. But it's not too soon to look ahead to how we begin to rebuild America's fiscal strength after the pandemic has finally been contained, whenever that's going to happen, and our economy begins to spring back to life. We hope that that's going to be a topic of debate in the, in the fall uh, 2020 elections. Uh, and we are working to make sure that it, it becomes that. And that's one of the reasons we've convened this podcast today. But we're fortunate that some of the nation's uh, le- uh, leaders have been thinking creatively uh, about the answer to this question uh, about our fiscal strength. And we're, uh, and we're very uh, happy to welcome today two leading members of Congress. Uh, let me introduce them. My, first, my good friend, Representative Scott Peters, who represents uh, California's 52nd district, which covers a lot of San Diego, a city in which he was also a longtime member of the city council. Uh, uh, Congressman Peters is on the House Budget Committee and is a prime sponsor of the Bipartisan Trust Act that creates mechanisms to deal with funding shortfalls in our big social insurance programs, Social Security and Medicare and the Highway Trust Fund. I'm sure he'll talk about that. Uh, Congresswoman Sharice Davids, uh, who represents the uh, Kansas City metro area, is someone we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, so welcome, uh, Congresswoman, really glad to have you join us. She was part of that uh, magnificent class of 2018 uh, that frankly helped uh, Democrats retake the House. She's also one of the uh, first two uh, Native American women to serve in Congress. Um, and she's also, this is interesting, an Ivy League trained lawyer who is also a former mixed martial artist. And so uh, this is not somebody you really want to mess with. Uh, she is, uh, along with uh, Congressman Peters, a co-sponsor of the Trust Act. So welcome to both of you. And before I, I go to you to get this conversation started, let me also introduce uh, my colleague, uh, Ben Ritz. Uh, PPI has also, I think, made a, a, a tremendous contribution to uh, the debate on our fiscal future uh, for, down the years and contributed some fresh ideas to this question of what happens after the pandemic ends. And Ben's been re- responsible for all that creativity as the director of PPI's Funding America's Future project. He's developed ideas for fiscal stabilizers or what we call a fiscal switch that uh, that would ensure that we're able to, uh, to uh, shrink our deficits in flush times when the economy is good, so that we will have the fiscal space to stimulate our economy when it's when times aren't good, when we're in downturns and recessions. So let me open uh, without further ado with a question for our congressional guests. 
Uh, we are on track to, uh, toward uh, a record-shattering $4 trillion deficit this year. Now, how do you all think about uh, the need to support our economy today uh, you know, with the need to be uh, fiscally responsible? So, Congressman Peters, if you'll start us off, please. Thanks, Will. Thanks for, thanks for the work you do at PPI. Um, we, I'm sure Sharice gets this question a lot. You know, we know, we've heard that, um, that uh, from economists across the political spectrum that uh, it's really important not to turn off this faucet now to try to keep the economy going by using our balance sheet to borrow. But uh, every, you know, every Zoom meeting I'm, I'm on with people at home says, people say, uh, how are you gonna pay for this? And so I, I think we recognize that we've had a um, lingering and growing issue with the debt and deficit coming up to now. Uh, there's not much disagreement among experts that we have to uh, use our balance sheet to borrow to keep things, uh, keep things going to the extent we can, whether it's direct payments uh, to people, whether it's uh, PPP loans to, get, to keep people on the payroll, or whether it's unemployment insurance for people who have fallen off. Um, but uh, I think it just calls into question again what we're going to do to get to get this house in order. It comes on the heels of what, what I thought were pretty irresponsible tax cuts during good times uh, that put us that much further behind the eight ball. So uh, for me and folks like Sharice and, and a few of us, it's really um, been something that we want to we want to identify answers to now and, and start talking about so that when things do turn around, uh, we can be on top of this again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, we, I hear, I hear a lot of the same sentiment when I'm having conversations with folks, people who are worried about, um, there, you know, I, in my district, there are a lot of people who have been worried about, um, our, our debt for a long time. And uh, I think that, uh, folks appreciate how many of us, uh, how, you know, I, I have the pleasure of, having many of these conversations with my colleagues about what are we gonna do when we're on the other side of, and it's not just this crisis, this is the one that we're, that is, um, you know, we're, we're obviously facing right now and it's had devastating impacts on so many people in so many sectors all across the entire uh, country that what we have to do is make sure that we're ready when we get on the other side of this um, crisis. But right now we have to make sure we're taking care of people's health and safety and setting ourselves up for success when when times get good again because they will and we will be on the other side of this at some point so uh, just uh, echo what congressman peters had to say thank you well let me pick up on what you said uh, i'm glad to hear that, that your constituent you're hearing from your constituents on this issue and uh, uh that they are concerned about this um but as you both mentioned, we're right in the middle of the, we're sort of in the middle of in the throes of a negotiation between the Democratic House and Republican Senate over the scope of the next relief bill uh, with uh, the de Democrats already on record as, you know, wanting to spend uh, considerable, you know, uh, three, up to three, is it $3 trillion, Ben? Three trillion more, yeah. Three trillion dollars more. Um, you know, so, uh, are we going to are we going to be able to get to some kind of yes with Republicans who are now arguing for a much more slender uh, package of aid, even as we see the uh, infections, COVID nineteen infections, going in more than uh, more in thirty nine states? In fact, I think we'll get to a yes. I think um, 
the risk is that we won't, it won't be big enough to keep us uh, from having to do this again and again and again. And so, uh, you know, on one hand, I think, um, uh, you know, that we, when you're, when, if, if uh, Senator McConnell announces a, a trillion dollar plan and Speaker Pelosi has three trillion, we're really just negotiating about, you know, where to land in between those numbers. And I think that that's uh, something that will be natural to Congress. But what I think is unfortunate is that, um, is that it won't give us a lot of confidence that we've dealt with the problem all along. And I know you want to talk about automatic stabilizers, but of course that is exactly why we need some mechanism uh, to deal with this without having to worry about whether we can all get back to Washington again, whether we can all agree on something, um, and you know, whether it gets harder to do that as, as naturally we approach the presidential election, which always makes everything tougher. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we can get to yes. I think that there are foundational things that um, that we need to see uh, in in our relief packages. But you know, I am concerned about um, making sure that we're doing what we can so that folks aren't um, you know really suffering unnecessarily when we could be um, providing the relief that folks need right now. Uh, we know that things are getting bad for some people and that things are already bad. Um, you know, certainly our small business community is, is suffering. Certainly our frontline um, uh, essential workers are, are, are suffering and we have to be able to make sure we're taking care of those folks. And I think the, the election, the upcoming elections, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat new to politics. I've worked in, uh, lots of areas before politics is a uh, new space for me. And so, um, you know, I think, I think just pushing for the things that are going to get real relief to, uh, to people who are suffering is, uh, is the way that we get to yes on these bills. I note that both of you represent big cities, which are in line, at least from the democratic perspective to get uh, serious support, but haven't always been the objects of solicitude from the Republicans. <laughs> I assume we're going to have a big battle on that. But since you both mentioned uh, automatic stabilizers and the things we do later to try to get our fiscal uh, debts down, why don't we go to, you know, why don't we go to that question and what you propose? You've both written, uh, you've signed letters to Speaker Pelosi. Uh, you're both uh, co-sponsors of this trust act. Why don't you tell us a little about what that does? And you're, you're thinking more broadly about automatic stabilizers and or other mechanisms for rebuilding our fiscal strength after this pandemic finally passes? Well, um, you know, we, we like the idea of, of automatic stabilizers, which would work like this. Would, you, would, um, you would tie the, the funding for things like SNAP, which used to be food stamps, or um, Medicaid, or unemployment to what, where the economy was. And if the economy continues to be in this bad shape or worsens, uh, you would have a mechanism in, in a piece of legislation that we passed up front that funds those automatically. And then as the economy approves, turns off that funding. Mm -hmm. um, and that would do two things. One is um, we, would, we would be certain that, that the aid we, we put in was metered for what was needed and went to who needed it potentially. But also it would give the economy certainty so that if you're an economic actor, you're trying to make a decision about whether to make an investment or, you know, what to do about your family savings, you wouldn't have to worry that uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi have to agree 
every so often. And we, I understand that after the, um, the um, uh, crash in, the, in 2008, there were 13 separate votes on extending aid. Well, I mean, what, what a roller coaster that is for an American trying to de decide how he or she's going to manage the business or even the family. So uh, that's why we thought that automatic stabilizers would make a lot of sense. Don Beyer has a bill on that uh, with respect to unemployment insurance. Um, we're hoping to use that as a model to um, affect what comes out of this, um, this uh, negotiation now. Uh, frankly, because of the way we score money, that way we decide how much something costs, um, it looks a lot more expensive than it is because all of the money we would spend is attributed to this year. Uh, so it makes the deficit look little, a little bit bigger, but that's really artificial. I think what we really want to do is make sure that we follow where the economy is with these aid programs. Yeah, I think, I think too, one of the things that's uh, been helpful when I've been talking to folks and, you know, like both of us said earlier, we hear from folks when we're on these uh, Zoom meetings, and it's something actually that I was hearing about before the coronavirus uh, pandemic and our relief packages related to that was, what are we going to do about the debt? Um, and this concept is, I think, something that folks um, can really understand when you start breaking it down into... Uh, how, how do we spend our money when we're having good times as individuals? You know, are you putting more into your retirement? Are you, you know, what kind of, are you paying down your debt? What kind of things are you doing individually? So that's something that um, I think folks have appreciated is our ability to kind of break it down. And, um, you know, some folks are not necessarily uh, policy wonks. And so they want to, they want to hear uh, how this, uh, relates to them. And then the second thing is uh, anybody who is in uh, the business sector, um, even nonprofit sectors, need to be able to plan ahead. And uh, what Congressman Peters was just talking about, people's ability to be able to plan ahead regardless of which political party is in power, regardless of, um, uh, of the kind of political wins being able to implement automatic stabilizers now will help us in the future just to be able to plan. And I think that um, that uncertainty that we're seeing right now is causing a lot of uh, stress and anxiety that um, if nothing else, we could, we could help people plan a little bit better. And I think that that, that would be uh, good for everybody. Right, well, um, thank you. And while we're on the topic of automatic stabilizers, let me go to, let me bring in Ben Ritz. Um, and, uh, you know, two questions. One is, how do we make, how do we popularize this idea? Automatic stabilizers <laughs> sounds, it does sound pretty wonky, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty Washington, yeah. pretty Washington-y, if that's a word. Uh, but, but first, Ben, why don't you kind of lay out our approach uh, to the fiscal switch proposal that you've been, that you've been uh, developing, and we're about to come out with a big report at PPI that include this idea that we, we think is a good, a good way of thinking about this automatic stabilizer idea. And Sure. So the idea behind the fiscal switch concept is, is exactly what uh, Congressman Peters and, and Congresswoman Davids were uh, talking about, where we want the government to, uh, in good times, build up its uh, fiscal capacity, spend down uh, or pay down our debt, 
And when we're in a recession and we need, or we're facing a national emergency, we want to be able to spend whatever we need to support our economy to make sure that it can uh, recover and grow healthy in the long run. And so the idea behind the fiscal switch is to build in those automatic mechanisms to do that without having Congress need to take votes and react in real time. I think that we saw uh, early on in the crisis, having Congress struggle to uh, legislate quickly amid a rapidly deteriorating economic environment, uh, that was a challenge. And at the same time, we also saw uh, back during the economic expansion, it was difficult to make the pivot to deficit reduction to uh, pay down our debt in advance of the crisis. And so building in mechanisms to automatically supply stimulus when it's needed and deficit reduction when it's not, uh, I think will better help manage these crises in the future. Mm -hmm. and, and Ben, just part of your thinking about that, I think is would also, uh, it would also rely more on the federal government's funding powers, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to ramp up in recessions or crises like the one we're in now in a way that, you know, I mean, you know, we have a lot of shared federal state programs, you know, uh, Medicaid, obviously, unemployment insurance. And, uh, and one of the problems is you have two actors there. So you want to just elaborate a little bit about, you know, programs where, where Washington has the kind of surge capacity for spending we need in an emergency. And the states really don't because the states are bound by, you know, balanced budget laws that keep them from deficits. Yes. So, uh, we have a, a number of federal programs uh, that operate as state and federal partnerships. Uh, infrastructure is a big one. The federal government, uh, most of our infrastructure spending happens at the state level, but the federal government provides significant uh, funding in the form of matching grants. Medicaid operates similarly uh, out of every dollar that is spent on Medicaid by state governments because state governments run Medicaid programs, but about two thirds of that is funded by the federal government. Uh, so the federal government is is providing matches for for the money that states are putting into these programs, and during recessions, states have uh, more uh, fiscal constraint and inability to spend. And so, uh, we saw in the last crisis and after the last crisis, they had to dial back their spending, uh, and that jeopardized these important uh, public service programs, essential services, but. Uh, the federal government has the ability to spend in these times and just borrow the money uh, that state governments don't have the same ability to do. And so what we think makes sense is to have in good times, uh, state governments pay a bigger share of the program. But then when a crisis hits and state governments have bigger funding constraints, increase the federal match and uh, you know provide additional support to programs like unemployment insurance and Medicaid to ensure that they are able to continue delivering essential services without crowding out important state functions. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, I hope that that, you know, I hope that that's helpful, you know, uh, to our friends on the Hill as they, as they think about automatic stabilizers and, and as you've all emphasized, you know, ways to avoid having sort of like the fiscal brinksmanship that we saw happen after the great recession with president Obama in the office. Republicans suddenly discovered that they were just mad about fiscal discipline and 
deficit reduction. And uh, you know, we, we battled endlessly and went through several shutdowns and, and risk yeah. of national default, you know, which, you know, to your points, both of the Congress, uh, members of Congress about uncertainty were not helpful. Uh, well, um, let's go to, why don't we talk about the trust just for a second so our, our, our uh, watchers can understand what that yeah. is. Again, you guys have so, put in a bill here that in addition to automatic stabilizers, looks at the big structural debts that the country's facing, Social Security, right. Medicare, and so forth, and, and how to deal with them after this crisis. So please tell us a little about that. So um, I, um, you know, we're also, we have a group of people who are thinking about what happens next after this. And um, there's uh, 60 members on a letter that uh, Jody Arrington and I led with a lot of, uh, great freshmen like, um, like Sharice Davids who have said, you know, we have to step up and deal with this problem in an honest way. There's three parts of that letter. One is a transparency part, which is just as let people know through a report under something called the fiscal state of the nation, how we're doing every year so that the public has an idea of this. Um, part of it is the trust act part to try to deal with some of these trust funds that are going insolvent. And another part will is, is, um, is to deal with the debt, the debt limit. And I know that, um, I'm not sure that um, Congressmember Davis has, Davis has been through this yet, but uh, you know, to, to use this artificial tool as a way to shut down the government and, and gain leverage, I think has been really bad for the country. So that's what our letter asked for. But on the Trust Act side, look, let's recognize that there are trust funds going insolvent. Let's take Social Security as an example. By 2034, um, Social Security will not be taking enough money to pay out the benefits. And what happens by operation of law at that point is a 21% across the board benefit cut. So if you actually wanted to cut Social Security, what you would do is sit on the status quo and wait for that to happen. And by the time you get to 2032, 2033, you've got all the leverage for, for cutting Social Security that you need. What the Trust Act would do is would say, we're going to put together a group of Congress. We're going to force them to make um, answers, make solutions, and bring them to Congress uh, and, uh, and deal with this. And the sooner we do that, the easier it will be from a financial perspective to get ahead of this. Uh, one criticism you hear is that, is that, oh, people are just doing this to cut Social Security. But as right. I said, it's the opposite. If you want to cut Social Security, sit on the status quo. The other thing we heard is, is we want regular order. We want, we want Congress to do this as part of the regular process. And, I, and that you know, didn't work in 2010 with, with Bowles Simpson. But 66% of Congress has been elected since then. 56% has been elected since I was elected in 2012. That's ancient history. And then I, I even was on a call the other day when someone said, um, you know, in 1983, this is what Reagan did. Well, I mean, most members, I, think, I don't know if uh, Congressman Davids was even alive in 1983. But barely. that is like, uh, <laughs> barely, right? I mean, that, that, is, um, that is just not working. And so we think the Trust Act is a really smart way to get at this problem, to force some solutions, to force a public discussion of what really is a looming disaster. Uh, and, and it was remarkable to me that no one, no one disputes that if we wait, benefits get cut. Thanks, and, and uh, Congresswoman Davids, I want to hear you on this question, but but also say a word, if you will, about your freshman class, because they're really important. Again, they flipped the House, created the Democratic majority. You know, 
are they also concerned about the structural deficits in Social Security, Medicare, the trust fund, and others? Uh, uh, you know, are they are they receptive to this trust uh, act approach? Or are they under pressure from the left wing of the party not to jump on to things like this that might, you know, in the left's eyes, uh, lead to cuts in Social Security benefits and things like that? Um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of folks who um, I know in, in the freshman class that I talked to exactly about um, these kind of issues. And, you know, there was, there are quite a few of us um, from Midwestern states that are, um, that got elected this time. I, I think a lot about uh, Kendra Horn and I and the conversations that we have uh, about, um, and she's, uh, I'm pretty sure has been um, on uh, yeah. the various letters and um, the Trust Act. And uh, I think that, you know, there are quite a few members who came in really on some of the principles, even just that we, that we were just talking about, the um, transparency, you know, making sure that people understand, you know, the concept of a fiscal state of the nation. I think if, for a lot of us, it sounds, um, it sounds like, of course, we should be doing that. And, um, and then the, uh, no, I haven't, I haven't experienced uh, the, the debt limit uh, piece. I think it's really interesting to hear the kind of statistics about how uh, these arguments have been playing out over the years and how many new members have come in since, um, uh, you know, since some of these arguments were being made. And um, when I think about what the freshman class looks like, certainly we are a broad, diverse class, and I don't just mean diverse um, as compared to uh, the existing Congress in term and age and uh, gender and race. And, you know, there are so many ways that we're diverse, but also in our backgrounds and our experience and just the sheer number of us that came in, we are certainly a broad coalition of, of people who don't always agree on every single um, uh, approach or, or policy issue. But I will say that um, the best policies come out of that. I think the reason that we have some, uh, the reason that the Democratic uh, Caucus is coming out with so many great policies is because we're having the conversations where we don't necessarily agree at the beginning, but by the end, we, we've really come up with something that we think can benefit um, as many people as possible. So I think the, I think the freshman class is bringing certainly a, a, a new take. Um, and I'm, I'm just excited to be able to work with with folks like Congressman Peters on um, how we address this issue that's really going to impact our, I mean, our grandchildren, you know, and I, I'm glad that you all are covering this and I'll look forward to reading your report as well. Thanks. Well, I, you, you all are both, I think, uh, Congresswoman Davids, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're both members of the, uh, of the New Democratic Caucus uh, in the House, which PPI has a long history with, going back to the actually prehistory of that organization. But uh, I assume you have solid support in, in those ranks. Do you have support on the other side, you know, progressive caucus, or have they taken a position on this particular bill, or, uh, or any, anybody over there, you know, sounding a note of concern about the fiscal picture of the country? I, I would give some credit to my colleague, John Larson, 
for coming up with a funded plan to deal with Social Security. Now, it's, um, it's very aggressive on the tax side. Um, and, uh, but I think, and so I don't think, it, I think it's gotten mostly um, support from the progressives. Uh, it has not made it out of the Ways and Means Committee uh, yet. Um, but um, to his credit, he's come up with, with a plan. I think it's got, I think that the solution ultimately has to be a bipartisan solution. And I, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm really rooting for a democratic majority to, to be maintained in the house. I worked hard for that. I want a democratic majority in the Senate. I want a democratic president. Democrats are gonna to have to lead on this, but we are gonna to have to work in a way that brings uh, people from across the political spectrum. So in our letter, to be honest, we've had mostly support from the Blue Dog Coalition and from a lot of the new Dems, but, um, but to me, um, you know, the country, the country needs to see uh, some willingness to deal with this from across the political spectrum. Senator Romney is a sponsor of the Trust Act uh, in, the, in the Senate. It doesn't prescribe an answer. Uh, it doesn't prescribe cuts. It doesn't prescribe tax increases. It just prescribes a process so that we can work together to get to an answer. And I think that that makes the most sense. I think most, most new Dems are in line with, with that kind of sensibility. Thanks. Let me, let me ask a devil's advocate question of all three of you, okay? Uh, let us assume that I was uh, kicked in the head by a martial arts artist and uh, lost my bearings politically, uh, and I came out with this proposal. Now that in Washington we've become inured to spending multi-trillions of dollars now, this is what, the fourth package or the fifth? Then I can't, I've lost. Uh, depending on how you count, you could even argue it's gonna be the sixth. Okay, so we have a lot of spending bills coming. And, uh, and people like you are saying, we're going to have to deal with this later. That's the good part of, that's the good news. While supporting what we need to do to, you know, to fight the pandemic and keep our economy on life support. But so if I were, if I were coming at this from the other side of the uh, debate, why not just simply say, we're going to add a couple more, we do another multi-trillion dollar bill. We're going to uh, plug those funding gaps, those shortfalls in Social Security and Medicare, the Highway Trust Fund, charge it to the deficit, charge it to the debt, and deal with that too after the pandemic has passed. Well, first of all, I want to agree with Ben. I would consider this upcoming one to be the sixth, sixth package. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that. I feel like the, you know, I, I, first of all, I think the best way for us to move forward is to always recognize that um, there are going to be arguments from all directions on the concept of uh, us navigating the spending that the federal government is doing. And no matter what, uh, at the end of the day, I, I believe that I was sent out here to DC in part to, um, of course, you know, uh, vote and try to propose policy. But a big part of my job is to listen. And the thing that my uh, district is concerned about, the things that my constituents uh, bring up are, how are we going to make sure that we're setting up our economy for our really our grandchildren. I often talk about this in relation to infrastructure uh, because, you know, we're operating on infrastructure that our, that our grandparents or for some people, great-grandparents built. 
and that we have the responsibility to make sure we're investing in these things. Um, but we have to do it in a really responsible way. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to make sure that I'm bringing those concerns and issues and all of us are doing that. Um, I think the most uh, appropriate approach and the way that we end up with policy that's long lasting is to do it in a bipartisan way. And that means that there's going to have to be compromise. That means that we're going to have to have sometimes like really harsh fights, not just amongst Republicans and Democrats, but amongst, uh, you know, our, our own caucus sometimes. And uh, like I said earlier, I just, I think that that's the best way to come up with good policy and not everybody's going to leave happy, but my, my goal is for us to be set up for the, for the future so that um, when we get on the other side of not just this crisis, but anytime we're facing a crisis that um, we're better positioned to be able to, um, to, to get ourselves on steady footing. Well, I, I share the concern that you at least implied in your question um, that uh, people have have lost their um, their conscience in terms of paying for stuff. Um, you know, we we passed a, a as part of the House rules, we have a pay for requirement that is regularly waived. Um, we um, we see the president. By the way, the presidential leadership has always been a little bit of the conscience of this. Even under Reagan and George H.W. Uh, Bush, um, they would raise taxes in order to make sure that we actually. Uh, paid for stuff. That's gone. Uh, President Trump, uh, I think, is almost self-styled as the king of debt uh, in the private sector. And he certainly brought that kind of sensibility here. And there's no, you know, there's no um, electoral pushback. I mean, I don't think the voters are marching in the streets for fiscal responsibility. It's just one of those things that's got to come from uh, the leadership of people who are here. So um, I, I think it is an issue. That's why it's so important to have uh, structures in place that would help us deal with this uh, now, um, even though we would take those actions in better times. Specifically, I think the, the I don't think that, I don't see the risk of <coughs> funding, debt funding the, the trust funds as much as I see the temptation of paying for all of a big infrastructure bill via debt. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of economists that recognize that an infrastructure bill would be somewhat stimulative, maybe part of it, if it, if it is still, a, if it's a Biden administration facing these kinds of fiscal um, conditions, maybe part of it should be um, debt finance, but also the notion that you wouldn't uh, have any levies of any taxes to pay for that, I think, is going to be tempting to some. I also just would, would note that there's this uh, new... Um, uh, dessert for, for dinner theory called modern monetary theory out there, uh, which is the notion that we'll, we'll never have inflation again. And, and it's a very, very risky bet that a lot of people, um, a lot of people love, but uh, you know, then the you know, question whether uh, we can just print our way out of this. I mean, I think, I, I just think that um, under any circumstances, there's some limit to that, but I think certainly that that's the, that's sort of the um, faux academic, uh, concept that people are picking up on to, to justify what could become very irresponsible behavior if we continue this into good times. Well, thank you. And I, you know, the deficits don't matter mantra has been spreading, you know, from Dick Cheney through the Republican Party uh, in recent times, as you point out, certainly President Trump. And I think on the Democratic side as well, 
Ben, tell us why that's wrong economically and fiscally. In other words, uh, if we were to, you know, if our debts grow uh, at just staggering rates, what happens to the economy? What happens to public investment, things that progressives care about? Yeah, if we allow our debt to continue to grow unchecked, that poses a, a big threat to uh, important public investments, whether that's education, infrastructure, scientific research, you know, investments that really lay the foundation for economic growth. Uh, right now, intra or before the, the pandemic, interest was about uh, equal to spending on those investments combined. We were spending as much servicing our past debts as we were on those uh, critical investments. And over the next decade, interest was projected to grow to be almost double that. Uh, and we saw during the pandemic that now we've had to borrow a lot of money. Interest rates have gone down temporarily, which is, is good and, and certainly something we need to do. But as the economy recovers, interest rates are going to rise. They, they have to, they're, they're at zero now. They're not gonna be zero forever. And so that creates a risk that we are going to repeat some of the mistakes from 2011 when uh, instead of dealing with the structural drivers of our deficit, uh, we are going to go, Congress is going to go back to the well and cut those critical investments. Back in 2018, they were at the lowest level they had been at a percentage of GDP uh, in 30 or 40 years. And so I think that uh, the more we run up these debts, the greater risk we have of that. And one of the things I think is important to, as Congressman Peters said, with regard to mon modern monetary theory, is that it's, it's playing a game of chicken with inflation. It's saying, we're not gonna tackle the deficit until we see uh, the whites of the eyes of inflation and, and then we'll deal with it. But if you do that, you have uh, half the budget, over half the budget is programs like social security and Medicare programs uh, aimed at healthcare and retirement that people plan their lives around. Uh, these are not programs that we can change on a dime. And if you're waiting until uh, you're seeing inflation, then you know, you're gonna have to slash discretionary spending to the bone, um, raise taxes uh, entirely on workers and it's gonna include middle-class workers, uh, or you're gonna have to cut benefits that people have planned their lives around. And that's just not fair, that's not right. And so I think it's critically important that we start phasing in reforms. Yeah, thank you. Well, of course, if you know, our liberal economists, I'm not going to name any names here, but uh, uh, you may know who I'm talking about. They would say that if you borrow now, interest rates at rock bottom and spend a lot of money, then you'll have a bigger economy that you can then, you know, tax later on to begin to close these, these gaps. To what extent does debt represent a kind of embedded investment in the future? And to what extent does it represent a drag on growth as we come out of this crisis and we're trying to see the economy? recover? I think it depends on what we spend the money on. If we're targeting it well, you know, providing uh, support to unemployed people, you know, there's, there's a debate right now about what percent of, of lost wages should be reimbursed by unemployment insurance. Uh, and the, the Republicans are, you know, if they allow the, uh, the supplement from the CARES Act to expire, which it actually did on Friday. So the, the supplement's now expired. Uh, they haven't passed an extension. Uh, so people are seeing are getting something like uh, 30 or 40 percent of their wages from before the pandemic. 
that's going to cause them to cut back their spending uh, dramatically, and that's going to include uh, lower and middle income workers or unemployed workers. That is going to have a big drag on the economy and making sure that people can maintain their spending power from before the pandemic, uh, I think is is very important use of money that would do a lot to support the economy so that it is growing afterwards and increase our tax base. And it does have those benefits. And same for any spending that is going to effectively reduce uh, the length of the pandemic. I saw one analysis that said, if you can get the vaccine to every American uh, one week earlier for uh, two or $3 billion, which was a deal the US uh, made with some drug companies recently, that would pay for itself. So there is some spending here that absolutely does make sense to, to borrow. But uh, if you're just throwing money out the door at a certain point, you're not getting those benefits. You're not getting uh, what we in the economics field call that fiscal multiplier. You're getting a bigger bang for your buck. And at a certain point, you're, you're just spending money that is going to create a drag in the future. And so it's important to do it, but it's important to do it wisely. Uh, I think this is really important for all of us who care about rebuilding our fiscal strength because it's not apparent to a lot of people out there, including in our own party, why deficits matter, why, uh, why we can't simply go just print money when we need it and uh, take refuge in the fact that we have the world's reserve currency we borrow in our own currency right. and that right. there's, you know, we're, not at, we're not at risk really of having people uh, run on the dollar like you know, they can do on the, on, you know, in other countries. Uh, and so, you know, really concretizing the arguments for the harm that, you know, right. big deficits do is important. And I just note, having been around the, uh, the block many, too many times, uh, uh, remembering when Clinton handed off big budget surpluses to George Bush, which he promptly squandered on a tax cut, uh, and then Trump did the same thing. He inherited an expanding economy and promptly uh, did a big tax cut at the very wrong time. You know, you're supposed to uh, you're supposed to stimulate a, a you know an economy that's in trouble, not one that's growing. And uh, the result in both cases is big run-ups in debt. So we keep ratcheting up the national debt. And of course, we had the Great Recession. So we went from 40 percent before the Great 40 percent of GDP before the Great Recession to wherever we are now and headed over 100 percent. And so each time there's a crisis. We do the stimulative spending, but we don't, on the other side of the crisis, do what's necessary to get ourselves back in a position to stimulate again. So it's, uh, you know, from the point of view of our own managing the business cycle, managing the, the, the economy's ups and downs, we relieve ourselves, we or deprive ourselves of a hugely important it, tool. And you haven't mentioned uh, the, the, you know, what this does to borrowing on the private side. I mean, what, you know, what we do is, is, if we don't tackle this, it's not that we're cutting taxes for us, it's we're raising taxes on our kids. And if we're not raising taxes on our kids, we're at least lowering their standard of living. Um, so this is an intergenerational problem too. And I think, um, I just think that it's really on us and I'm part of the, the very end of the boomers. Um, it's on us to, to fix this before we go so that, um, uh, you know, our kids don't have to suffer. We, we, should, we should not leave them a, a country that's in worse shape than we got it. You know, and I think it's, it's interesting that you, you talk about the intergenerational angle and also, uh, you know, the, the boomers leaving, leaving things better for future generations. But also, uh, it, this is also a, a problem that's going to impact the boomers as well, uh, as we're seeing. The, right. 
the the pandemic moved up the insolvency of the social security trust fund almost certainly and you know we're likely to see uh that th those potential benefit cuts you talked about earlier uh within the next 10 15 years it was 15 now it's going to be closer to 10 and you know like you said a lot of baby boomers like yourself this is not something that's going to be happening long when you're gone this is a uh, a near-term issue and a long-term issue. Right. And on top of that, I think we have an unresolved debate, I'll put it that way, among many Democrats about, you know, whether you need to do any, I mean, whether, you know, it's true, as you pointed out, uh, Congressman Larson has a fix, you want, but boy, that's a big hike in the payroll tax, which is the most regressive tax out there. Right. Uh, as a really painful way for working people to solve the problem of social security insolvency. So the way we solve this problem is really, is really critical. Let me, let me switch tracks a little bit and talk about the Republicans for just a minute. I, it's kind of been fascinating to watch them uh, fall out. There's a lot of infighting among uh, Senate Republicans now uh, about the question of how big to go on the next package with Senator Cruz and Paul, you know, Senators Cruz and Paul uh, trying to uh, summon up the old Republican, you know, kind of uh, embrace of fiscal rectitude seems to be entirely lost in this administration and say, you know, that we're overspending and, uh, and, com and compromising our reputation such as it is as a party of fiscal discipline. Um, and, you know, uh, opposing a big a bailout, uh, you know, a larger bailout. They want to keep it really limited. Um, so, uh, you know, but on the other hand, we have the Trump record that we've already talked about. This is a president who promised to eliminate the national debt in eight years, one of the, his more outlandish promises among many, but one of the most absurd ones. And of course, instead is, uh, is added about uh, seven or so trillion dollars to the national debt on his watch, even though the, again, the economy didn't need a big, big, uh, big uh, dollop of stimulus. Just as, as people who go out and get elected in, in places in America, you know, what's the Republican party's credibility as a manager of the nation's finances? Not, not any credibility at this point. I mean, I think that one of the things that um, there have been quite a few reasons why, uh, from my perspective, I've seen folks uh, leaving the Republican Party, and you know, this is this is happening in in Kansas. Is folks have um, seen the embrace of uh, of Trump and his approach that I consider to be chaotic and often nonsensical um, and have wondered what is the Republican Party now if um, they're gonna if if the leadership of the Republican Party out here in DC has embraced and supported Trump in his um, not just the rhetoric that's a big piece of it but also um, really cutting against uh, basic uh, things that I know folks have considered Republican values for a long time. And I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves moderate Republicans who have thought of fiscal responsibility as being a key uh, piece of that. And we've seen time and time again, the Republican Party uh, pass legislation that cuts against that. We've seen, uh, you know, a president who 
you mentioned it earlier. I don't know if anybody uh, knows much more about debt and bankruptcy than Donald Trump. Um, and so I think that uh, right now, the best thing that, that they can be doing as a party is supporting, you know, we have a number of, of Republican colleagues who have been talking about this with us. And I think that that's a, a, a strong step in the right direction. I agree. I think, you know, what it's really very sad what's happened to the Republican Party. In California, I, I can't imagine they could be much lower. They've, um, uh, and, you know, they, they really have to be about values and they've become, frankly, about Trump. Uh, and you can see why. I mean, I, I became friends with a, a fiscal hawk, uh, Mark Sanford from South Carolina. We didn't agree on a lot, but he came out and he said that he thought that President Trump was spending too much money and was being fiscally irresponsible. A couple tweets later, he lost his primary. Uh, and you saw what happened to Jeff Sessions. It's the same thing. So they're scared to death of this guy. Um, and he's really, he's really led them astray to the extent that they had any sensibility or, or, or compunction about spending money, uh, that's gone. And, um, you know, someday the Republicans will come back. They'll come back with, uh, with leaders like Mitt Romney. I mean, I would keep your eyes on him. Um, but he's a rarity among that, among that group right now. And uh, I think that, um, like Cherise said, we're happy to have the people alongside us who've, who said that they want to get back at it. But um, the the cowering before Trump is really, it's just remarkable. And it's sad because we really need a two party system. Um, I think I think the country does better when, um, you know, when we're having that debate. And um, I, I think that uh, Republicans had something to say, but they've stopped saying it. Well, I would I would also just add that it's, it's, we've seen it get a lot worse under Trump, but we've, we've been seeing this start to be a problem uh, even before him, yep. you know, uh, one of the one of the reasons that uh, I think Democrats in Kansas have been able to do so well recently, and they got a Democratic governor, and uh, this was after the the Republican governor passed massive tax cuts, right, right. Uh, starved the education system, you know, and now we're seeing Democrats be able to do better in a place that you know ten years ago getting a Democrat elected in Congress in Kansas was much harder, and so I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, th this is something that they're doing up and down the ballot. And, and it's just encouraging to hear you all say that, you know, suburban women, other constituencies that have, are defecting from the Trump party uh, are moving in Democrats' direction and that this is one, this is, this is a reason. Well, folks, I'm told by uh, Carter, who runs the show here, that we have about four or five minutes left. So let me close with just a final question and any use the occasion to, to add anything you wanted to say that it didn't get an opportunity to say, but, you know, let's go, let's go to February next year, 2021, President Biden's in office. He's got his team in place. He's writing his first budget, but he's got a, a hell of a dilemma. He's proposed a lot of pretty ambitious, uh, you know, new spending initiatives. And at the same time, with any luck, we'll be coming, we'll be in a, you know, we'll be recovering more and the, and the, pandemic may actually be under much better control by then. But, you know, uh, but this, this choice will hit him square in the face, won't it? That is, you know, to honor his campaign uh, promises for some very ambitious reconstructions of, the, uh, of a country that needs rebuilding after this pandemic recession, really the worst we've had since the Great Depression. And on the other hand, 
to do it, to, to take account of what you all are focusing us on, which is the need to uh, rebuild our strength, our fiscal position after the pandemic goes. So just reflect a little on that challenge and how we all could help a President Biden. You know, what we're coming out with the resilient recovery package uh, in the next couple of weeks, I think that will, will offer a good framework. And I would encourage him to look at concepts like the fiscal switch, uh, automatic stabilizers and the trust act that will make sure that we're providing the economic support that our economy needs in the short term, but then also begin to phase in those long-term reforms that will get our structural deficit under control and be able to pay for the promises that he has made in the campaign without putting an undue burden on future generations. Congressman uh, Peters. Well, I would say, uh, you know, I talked to the Biden campaign about this and I tried to tell them that you know, the fiscal state of the nation, the trust act, doing something about the debt limit in a bipartisan way, that's their friend, right? Get people signed up now on both sides of the aisle to say that we're gonna deal with this as the time is right, but we're gonna deal with it with integrity and, and sincerity. Um, and you'll be able to have more, more flexibility to do things that might be stimulative at the beginning of your term. But unless you have that backstop, not just Republicans, but a lot of us, uh, you know, from the suburban districts um, are going to wonder, like, what do we tell our constituents about this? Like, when does it stop? How does it stop? So, um, you know, we think we'd, we'd love to have him on our team. And I also know that Joe Biden is someone who cares deeply about the country. He has a lot of empathy for people. He's got to be worried about them losing their Social Security. Uh, and he's a bipartisan by nature. I and mean, that's always been his approach in the Senate, even though he was never a a particularly conservative guy. Uh, it's funny that they call him a moderate. He's always been one of the most liberal senators. But, you know, get people on board on both sides with a structure to deal with this, and he'll be a lot better off. Yeah, well, when I talk to Vice President Biden, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I have, I, I do agree, though, um, I've been on a couple of the, uh, a couple of calls of, about this. And um, first of all, just, you know, I agree with everything Congressman Peters said. Uh, making sure that we're focusing on that bipartisan approach for long-term, I mean, long-term policy, I think that's truly impactful, will, will be of a bipartisan nature. And I know that Vice President Biden is um, a consensus builder and he's somebody who um, wants to, uh, certainly wants our country to be set up for, for future generations. And so um, I have, I have no doubt that he's going to be um, really cognizant of this stuff, and my hope is that he'll be he'll definitely uh, be listening to some of the proposals that we've been talking about here today. Thank you. You know, you you were both right. If there's any Democratic president who could preside over a bipartisan budget compromise or deal, uh, it would be Joe Biden because he's never been an inveterate partisan. Unfortunately, we remember what happened when Barack Obama was elected yeah. and the Republicans decided to go into total scorched earth opposition. Well, look, I see Carter, so we're gonna have to probably wrap it there. Let me just close by saying, uh, or underscoring what you said, Congressman Peters, at the outset, the other great thing about your, your automatic stabilizers approach and ours is that you don't have, you know, if you, if you do it right, you have automatic systems where you don't have to have 15 votes right. in next February that are going to split the parties and may even split, you know, cause fractures within the party. 
that that's a pretty big uh, political advantage. So what you are doing is is very smart and it's pragmatic and it's right for the country. So congratulations and thank you and whatever TPI can do to help uh, you two uh, and your colleagues uh, advance these ideas, we are thrilled to be able to do. So with that, thank you all for joining. It's been a great uh, conversation and discussion. Congressman Davis, it's great to meet you. I hope we can- uh, This was great. I'm glad I was able to do this with you guys. We can follow up uh, when, when the pandemic ends and actually meet each other in person. So thanks everybody. When we're all seeing each other in person again. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And thanks to Sharice for being such a rock star. Appreciate it, you and your colleagues.